Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word that you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Send your Holy Spirit now to open our ears to hear what you want to say to us and move our hearts towards obedience according to your will. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you remember uh, the first time you started making a little bit of money. Um, when I was a boy, I mowed lawns and I made a little extra money. And what I did with that is whenever I got some money, I would go down to our, I lived in a small town, I would go down to Main Street, and there was a gift shop, Pratt's gift shop, and I would take those few dollars and I would buy some baseball cards, and Topps baseball cards, and uh, if I had anything left over, then I would top it off with a malt, chocolate malt. That's where most of my money went as a kid, but I learned some lessons even at an early age about money. You know, money meant power, power to acquire something. Uh, money meant a measure of independence from my parents because I didn't have to ask them and beg them to buy what I wanted. I could go out and get what I wanted. And money meant a little bit of status, a little bit of distinction, because if I got the baseball card that I really wanted and my best friend wanted, and I got that instead of him, you know, if I got the Mark McGuire rookie card, I could you know, have a little bit of uh, a fun and uh, would be distinct from him. So, you know, early on we learned that money has this power and this pull. And it appeals, it can appeal to our sinful nature for power and for influence and for status and those sorts of things. And so as Christians, we have to, especially in this affluent society that we are living in, we have to guard against what Paul calls in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, the love of money. In, in verse 10, he says these words, and oftentimes these are kind of garbled and misquoted, but it, it's not money itself that's the root of all evil, but is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, spurs all sorts of evil. The word there he uses is philos or phila, phila guria is what he says. The love of or the affection, philo, philo means af affection and love and desire. Um, so the, it's the love of money, the affection, the desire for money that is the root of all kinds of evil that he says. And so what I want to do is just talk about how we can fight against this love of money, the, 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 the pull, the attraction that, that, that money has for us. How can we fight against it? And I just want to look at what Paul is saying to his young disciple, Timothy, here. And the first is he gives him some warnings about money. And then we're going to look at some attitudes he wants Timothy to cultivate. But first of all, let's look at the warnings that he gives about where this love of money can lead. Look at verses uh, 9 through 10 again. But those who desire to be rich, I mean, they've made it a goal. That's what they're pursuing in life. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. That's kind of an interesting image. It's not that they set off to leave the faith, but they've wandered away from the faith. 
and pierce themselves with many pains. So haven't we seen that in, um, in our world and, and in life that people who make money, the pursuit of money, the primary objective of their life, oftentimes if you look at kind of the trajectory of their life, there's some tragic consequences that follow from that. You know, that people are led to make some compromises and to burn some bridges because these, comp- these moral principles or these relationships are in their way to the goal of getting as much money as they possibly can. And I think, if we're honest, we've, we've seen that in people's lives and maybe we've wrestled with that in our own life. I came across a testimony of a, this is a true testimony of a man named Ranaj who was uh, Indian descent and then he immigrated to England and he became a citizen of England and became very successful in England. He developed uh, apartment complexes. He was a major, became a major property developer in London before the recession. And then he also uh, was a playwright and was very gifted, talented writer. And one of his shows that he wrote uh, was nominated for an Emmy. So this was happening when he was, I think, in, in his early 30s or so. And he was just kind of skyrocketing on the, on the ladder of success. But he wrote this in his testimony. He said, um, I was on a treadmill moving at a reckless play- pace. I had become addicted to risk-taking. Growing success failed to bring me the satisfaction that I craved. My wife bore the brunt of my addiction. I was spending more time away from home, eating out at expensive restaurants, spending thousands on clients, and ultimately I cheated on my wife. And again, I think we we see that happening sometimes in people's lives when they make money and possessions the main goal of their life. It's exactly what Paul is warning about here in this passage of scripture that that this that this path that you're on that the path that you could be on leads to destruction so he's warning Timothy against that now for Renage it was a testimony so it was about how God intervened in his life and reset his priority so thankful for that but then Paul says you know the love of money has led people this craving for more money in verse 10 has led people to wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pains. And you can imagine that Paul, he's an old man writing this towards the end of his life. He's been in ministry for many years, and he's probably thinking about specific people as he's writing this. People who started off well in the faith. People who are enthusiastic about Christ. But he's probably thinking about people who, who wandered away from Christ because they, they got off track. Their priorities got off track. And, and it says that they pierce themselves as self-inflicted pains of maybe regret of realizing what they've left behind. Last week, we saw from Luke 16. Now, this, this week, our, our parable was from Luke 16. Last week, also, we had some teaching from Luke 16. And in Luke 16, that's what Jesus is really hammering on in, with his disciples. He's, he's warning them about becoming a, a lovers of money. And he's criticizing the religious leaders of his day because they had fallen into that trap. And, and so remember last week what Jesus said, these famous words, no one can serve two masters. It's, it's, he's, it's impossible, he says, to have two top priorities in your life. Something's got to give. And then the application is you cannot serve both God and mammon or God and money. 
And so that's something that we need to take seriously is this warning that we have all through Scripture and here in this text about where this can lead. It can lead to destruction. It can weaken our faith and our hope in Christ. And so, you know, for young people kind of just starting out on a career path or young people thinking about what's really the priority of my life, what am I going to order my life around? Heed these warnings that you see in the New Testament because many young people will just say today, my goal, I hope to be rich. That's what I'm pursuing. Heed the warnings that are there in the New Testament that if you go down this road, it can lead to compromise. It can lead to destruction in a personal way. And if you're a Christian, it will displace Christ. Christ will no longer be on the throne. For those of us who are older, I think the call here is to make sure that our certainty, our hope is in God and not in money. He says that in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The ups and downs of wealth. The ups and downs of the market. We can't put our hope in those things. But instead on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So those are the warnings. Heed the warnings in the New Testament about the love of money. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Listen to what Jesus has said. Take those warnings seriously. But then there's something positive that we can do, and that is to cultivate an attitude of contentment and generosity. And I see that in this passage as well. To cultivate these attitudes of contentment and generosity will help loosen the grip that money can have on us. So he says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. He's writing this to Timothy at this point in the letter because he's been talking about false teachers who were in it for the money. These false teachers, they have infiltrated the church, and he talks about how they're stirring up division and dissension within the body of Christ and teaching strange doctrines that don't lead to godliness. And their motivation, however, is to use their position as sort of an entree into people's pocketbook, so to speak so that they will be supported by people, and they're in it for the money. Boy, does that have any relevance today in our world and what we see sometimes happening in Christian circles where ministers, teachers, prominent people on TV, they're kind of in it for the money, and they teach a form of the gospel, prosperity gospel. And it's obvious that they're in it for the money. But he says, Timothy, don't go down that road. If you want to experience great gain, true gain, true value, it's godliness with contentment. And here's how we can be content. Or here's a rationale for contentment with what we have. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. The things that we have in this world are not going to last. We can't take it with us. So we're content with what we have, but we realize that our, 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 our true contentment is not in stuff. It's in a relationship with Christ. In fact, that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 6. Remember, Philippians chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, I think it's, it's Philippians chapter 4, rather. Philippians chapter 4, where Paul is talking about the different situations that he has been involved in in his ministry. 
And he's writing this from a jail cell in Philippians chapter 4. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content. I've learned the secret of being content whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. And you know what the secret is? It's Philippians 4.13, which you've seen tattooed on baseball players' arms and markered on basketball shoes. Philippians 4.13. What is it? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I think what Paul is saying here, in any situation I'm in, whether I have a little or I have a lot, I always have Christ. I always have this relationship with Christ that I can draw strength from. And I know that this relationship is going to last forever. What I have now in this world, I can't take it with me, but I have Christ. And that relationship sustains me now and is going to endure forever. So that was for Paul, a secret to contentment, his relationship with Christ. And what we see sometimes happening in the world is that people who get so wrapped up in material possessions, and they have made that a primary goal, if not the primary goal of their life. As they get to the end of their life and they face eternity, they find it's empty. They don't have true contentment because it's not based on a relationship with an eternal God. And so Paul urges us to develop and cultivate this life of contentment now in light of eternity to come. And then he says in verse eight, now these are challenging words. I read this and I thought, you know, I, I aspire to this verse eight, but I'm, I have to admit I'm not there yet because he says, if we have food and clothing with that, we'll be content. That should be enough. If our basic needs are being met, then we should be content. And everything else is icing on the cake. Again, I'll be honest. I don't think I'm there yet. We live in a culture that just preaches discontent with what we have. We need to buy more stuff to be more content. So we buy more stuff to get more contentment. And then we realize we need to buy the next new thing to have contentment and on and on it goes. But we need to watch that. We need to realize that if our basic needs are being met, we should have some sense of contentment about it. Everything else is icing on the cake. So that's one of the attitudes that we need to cultivate. How can we grow in contentment? How can we just reflect on what God has given us in this life and say, you know, for most of us in this room, I think probably for everybody in this room, our basic needs are being met. And we should be thankful to God that that's happening in our life. It's not happening in a lot of other people's lives throughout the world. And we should be grateful that just our basic needs are being met and everything else is icing on the cake. So that's an attitude that we're called to cultivate. The other attitude is generosity. And I see that in verses 17 through 19. So let's skip down there. Now, what he says in verses 11 through 16 is really good. We just don't have time to deal with it. It's one of Paul's famous digressions. You know, it's related, but, but he's kind of going off on a little bit of a, of a tangent. It's definitely related, but he's, he's giving his disciple Timothy this wonderful, beautiful charge of how he wants Timothy to conduct his ministry. This is one of those things that you want to hear preached at an ordination sermon. These are the things that a young pastor needs to focus on. But then he comes back to verse 17 and he talks about how Timothy should respond to those who are wealthy. Wealthy Christians. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, Timothy, tell them that it's wrong to be wealthy. 
He doesn't say, Timothy, teach your people that it's more spiritual to be poor. Now, those are attitudes that sometimes have gained some currency in Christianity. But that's not where Paul goes, and that's not really biblical. What he, what he says is, I want those who are wealthy to understand where their wealth comes from and that God has blessed them to bless other people. God has been generous to them so they can be generous to others. Listen to what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Um, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there's the principle that we need to understand. Whatever we have ultimately has been given to us from God. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That kind of cuts against an American attitude that if I have it, I've earned it. And there's truth to that, of course. If we work hard, if we study hard, we are going to, generally speaking, meet with some success in life. But the truth of the matter is, ultimately, our ability to work, our ability to study, the talents that we have, the brains that we've been given, the very breath that we're breathing is ultimately from God. And so everything that we have is from a generous God. And then we're called to be generous with that. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Because God has been generous with us, he asks us to be generous with others. We, we, we read that parable from Luke 16, which is a real, it's a real sobering parable and uh, you can study that parable and 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 learn something about the afterlife i mean there's some sobering ideas in luke 16 this parable of the rich man and lazarus and uh and you can study it for for just trying to understand what life is like after death for those who reject god and are not repentant and uh there's some doctrine here to to, uh, to apply and to study regarding the afterlife. But one of the points of this parable is that a clenched fist is a sign of a spiritually sick heart. See, the rich man held on to what he had, even though he saw this beggar in desperate need at his doorstep, and he wouldn't let go of what he had. And after he died, it was too late. His heart was wrong. His heart was distant from God. And after he died, it was too late. But a generous hand, an open hand, a hand that's willing to share is, is a sign of a heart that understands that what I have been given is from God who gave generously to me. So I can give back. I can give back. And I know many of you know that lesson very well. The question is, we want to reflect on is, can I do even more? Is God calling me to do even more for the sake of the kingdom? There's a story. I, I heard a story from another rector of a father and son. They're driving down the highway. His young son turns to his dad and says, Dad, I'm starving, hungry. So they see the golden arches up ahead, and they, they pull off to McDonald's. And the dad buys him, you know, a giant extra large French fry. You know, McDonald's french fries when they're crispy and salty and hot and they're steaming. And he puts that on his son's tray and he enjoys watching his son eat these things up because he loves his son. 
you know, and he just likes to see his son eat so heartily. But then he does what every dad does. He reaches over to grab some, a fry for himself. And the son smacks his hand. And he said, Dad, get your own. This is mine. Get your own, Dad. Wow. So the, son, the dad gets back in the car with his son and doesn't really say anything, but he's thinking to himself, my son doesn't get something. I'm the one that got him those fries in the first place. If I wanted to, I could have bought him so many fries that he would have been overwhelmed. Or if I wanted to, I could have taken every single fry away from him. He doesn't get it that it all came from me. And all I asked was for just a portion. And we can apply that to our Heavenly Father. He's ultimately, he's given everything that we have. And he asked for a portion of it to use for his kingdom and for his glory. He asks us to be generous with the gifts he's given to us. And so the issue is, where are we going to invest? What are we pursuing? As we grow in contentment and generosity, the the love of money loses its grip on us. And then we can invest in what Paul talks about at the end of this passage. He says, those who live generously, those who do good and are rich in good works, are generous and ready to share, they store up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future. Again, he's thinking about eternal future. He's thinking about eternal treasure. We don't earn our way to heaven. We don't earn salvation through good works. But there's rewards in heaven and responsibilities in heaven based on how we've handled our resources here. He says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So let me just uh, end with a question that I've had to ask myself this, this week as I've worked with this passage, and even last week was about money. So we've hit this topic a couple of times, and it's everybody's favorite topic when it comes to church. Somebody said to me after service last week, I feel a little guilty. And I said, I think we all do. None of us really live up to this standard perfectly, or many of us don't. There are some examples of generous people in this congregation, though, that just blow my mind. Generosity in this congregation. But the question is this. Can I do a little more for the kingdom of God with what God has given me? Now, for some people, the answer might be no. I mean, there are seasons of life. When I was a student, for example, we didn't have anything really to give in the way of material things. There's other ways to be generous besides money. But here Paul's talking about money, so that's what we're going to talk about. But can I do a little bit more for the sake of the kingdom? And talk to your spouse about that if you're married and reflect on where are resources going? Are are we content with what God has given us now? And is he calling us to greater generosity and greater uh, greater sacrifice? And maybe saying some things, no to some things that we really don't need to invest in his kingdom. If I give a little bit more, maybe somebody, another person will hear the gospel. That wouldn't have. If I, if I give a little bit more, maybe there's going to be a school that's built or a child that's educated or a refugee family that's fed. If I give a little bit more, maybe the ministries here at our church can expand a little bit more. So reflect on that. And ask yourself prayerfully and ask God, can I do a little bit more for the kingdom? And if so, where do I need to invest that money? And pray about that this week and see where God directs you. Again, for some people, the answer may be, no, I I really can't do much more beyond what I'm already doing. But I think for a lot of us, and I'm including myself, the answer is probably, yes, I can do a little bit more. Some people, maybe God's saying, you can do a lot more. 
you can do a lot more for the sake of the kingdom of God and make an eternal difference. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to just uh, reflect on that question today and throughout this week, to think on it prayerfully, to consider carefully what you're teaching here so that the, the love of money and the grip of money would be loosened in our life and uh, we would be freed up to be content and generous and joyful with the resources you've given us. Lead us, O God, in this area of life. For your sake, for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen, amen.